Today's episode is brought to you by Annalise McIntosh's Bright and Dangerous Objects, which Lydia Kiesling calls original, inventive, and incredibly enjoyable. The novel follows commercial deep-sea diver Solvig in her quest to be one of the first human beings to colonize Mars, exploring the space between ambition and obligation and grappling with questions women have faced for centuries while investigating a future that humanity is only beginning to think about, says Deb Olin Unferth. Macintosh has written a beauty. If you've ever weighed two different eternities in your hand and had to choose which to love most, this book is yours. Bright and Dangerous Objects is out now from Tin House. I'm excited to present today the third conversation in our Tin House Live series. Today's episode called Getting Past the Gatekeepers, How to Keep Writing in an Industry that Excludes Us, is a conversation between Mira Jacob and Caitlin Greenidge. They discuss their combined 30-plus years of experience of navigating literary publishing from first feedback to final copy edits and the strategies they've employed to stay sane and keep writing when what they were writing didn't fit the publishing industry's narrow bookshelf. This is both Mira and Caitlin's first appearance on Between the Covers, and I think it is also their first participation in the Tin House Writers' Workshop. Mira as faculty, Caitlin as a special guest. A particularly good episode to follow this with, if you haven't listened to it already, might be the Tin House Live episode with Ingrid Rojas Contreras, a craft talk called Power and Audience, where she talks about both the state of the literary publishing industry in regards to representation and also how not to write toward the white gaze, despite the expectations and pressures you might receive to do so. If this is your first experience in Between the Covers and you enjoy today's episode, or if you are a longtime listener, consider becoming a listener supporter. You can find out all the possible benefits of doing so, which are many and growing, from becoming an early reader at Tin House, receiving a year's worth of books months before the general public, to access to bonus readings from each week's guests, to joining collective brainstorms that help shape the future of the show. You can find out about all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now to today's episode where the assistant director of the Tin House Workshops, India Downs Le Guin, will introduce Mira Jacob and Caitlin Greenidge. Enjoy today's program. All right. And I'm very excited to be here with Caitlin Greenidge and Mira Jacob for their conversation, Getting Past the Gatekeepers, How to Keep Writing in an Industry that Excludes Us. Caitlin's incredible debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was a New York Times critic's top 10 books of 2016, and was a finalist for the Center of Fiction First Novel Prize. Other fiction reviews, essays, and criticism have appeared in places like Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed, Virginia Quarterly Review, The Believer, American Short Fiction, and many others. She is currently a contributing writer for the New York Times, and her second novel, Liberty, will be published in 2021 from Algonquin Books. Mira Jacob, who we're so lucky to have as faculty this week, is the author of two critically acclaimed works, the graphic memoir, Good Talk, a memoir in conversations, and the novel, A Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. 
Her work has appeared in places like the New York Times, Book Review, Electric Literature, Tin House, Literary Hub, Wernicke, and Vogue. She's the co-founder of Peace Reading Series in Brooklyn, a founding faculty member of the MFA program at Randolph College, and she's currently the visiting professor at MFA Creative Writing Program at the New School. Mira and Caitlin, thank you so much for being here with us. Hey, hi. Thank you so much, India, for that introduction and this incredible week, you guys. What a week. What a week. Um, I know that I am not the only one that is coming to this with a little bit of a heavy heart, um, but I just want to thank everyone for making this week amazing. Lance and India and all my cohort who were writing um, emails back and forth today to see what we were doing to make our last classes count. And I just the whole heart behind this feels like it's exactly in the right place. So I just want to say thank you to everyone and all of the incredible um, students in the workshops. The work is blowing us away. Okay, so we are talking about um, gatekeeping and gatekeepers and getting through this process. And it is, it's actually funny. I realized, um, Caitlin, as I was sort of prepping for this, I realized that you're like my number one call in the moment where I think something bad is happening. <laughs> like I've had three moments and I think something bad is happening, but I'm not sure. And I usually like immediately am calling or texting you. It's you're you're kind of my first like, am I crazy call? Yeah. Um and I and I feel like that's like you play such an instrumental role in my life this way. Um and I know you and I have been through a lot of stuff in the last um years, just kind of seeing the industry change. Um, but also seeing what doesn't change um, and feeling on different levels about this. So, um, so you guys, the way this is going to go is we're going to talk a little bit and then um, we'll give, well, I'll, I'll try to hold like 20 minutes at the end for questions, which you can put in the Q&A um, and we'll get to as many as we can. But just to start off, um, Caitlin, I think a lot of times when we talk about gatekeeping, it's... Um, we think like, oh, the editor or, you know, like somebody at the helm of a literary magazine. But there are so many different ways, in fact, that you can kind of trip on people in this industry or they can present direct obstacles. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about all the ways that gatekeeping happens in the industry, all the ways it's affected you. Yeah, sure. So I think... Um... Definitely like the the most obvious and like the understandable ones are, are editors and publishers and agents can it can feel as if gatekeepers are agents. Um, but I think it also happens, you know, sort of at every stage of your career. Um, and uh, I think what makes it difficult is figuring out the stakes when you're encountering each different type of, of gatekeeper right like a, a type of gatekeeping that happens a lot, especially if you are um, uh, writing about marginalized people and writing from or writing and or writing from a marginalized identity is the gatekeeping around copy editing, right? Like this has happened to both of us. Um, you are writing, you're using um, the language of your community, perhaps you're using descriptions of your community. Um, and a copy editor can come in um, with a very specific frame of reference and, and start to tell you that you're wrong. I mean, that's happened to me many times where a copy editor rewrites my sentences, rewrites the flow. Um, you know, I come from a culture and a, uh, I don't even know if this is West Indian culture. I think this is just my particular family of West Indians, but um, repetition is like key to me and my understanding of language. So I use a lot of repetition in my work. Um, and almost every piece that I hand in, I get the copy edit back. Um, why is this repetition here? Mm -hmm. um, 
which is oftentimes like read it out loud. I don't know what to tell you. Read it out loud. That's how it works. <laughs> like it's working when you read it out loud. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, it can start to trip you up. And especially when you are in, in the beginning stages of your career, um, figuring out some of those, when those even gatekeeping moments are happening. Um, because when you are in your beginning stages of your career, like you said, between you and I, we often have check-in moments of being like, am I crazy? Or like, is this a real complaint? And when you're starting out, it's even harder because if you get back that copy edit that says this is wrong and you've never published anything before, and this is like your chance at a publication, the stakes can feel so high to come back and say, actually, I wrote it this way on purpose. Actually, I wrote it this way because this is the way we speak. Actually, I wrote it this way because this is a legitimate part of language that maybe you don't understand. Um, and so um, in addition to that conversation about like, who are these extra gatekeepers, it's oftentimes navigating like, when am I going to um, risk pushing back? Um, mm -hmm. And when am I going to uh, figure out if there's another avenue for me? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, to that point, I feel like even now, having been a little bit more established, I still get nervous about those moments. Like mm -hmm. I have to have a moment where I think like, no, you've published plenty. You're like, you know what you're doing this, you know, the answer to this question even. Um, but when, when I, even I find that when I know the answer to the question, this is always a signal to me when I know the answer to the question, when it's been asked before of me and I give that answer and I'm still my authority, um, to be able to give that answer about my own work is discredited or undermined. Um, yeah. the anting up to again, fight that fight is always where I get the more, the most nervous, right? To, mm -hmm. to and like reach out and be like, no, 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 this is really the way I want it. Something about that is even really unnerving in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a, it's sort of how we talk about or how the wider literary criticism talks about how um, marginalized people create work, right? Like it's assumed that when we're writing, it comes from some sort of like, like primitive space and we don't know what we're doing. We don't have craft. So we write from a place, right? It, the, the, the narrative that's often put on our work is that we're writing sort of like from some sort of like, I don't know, like place of like cry of pain into the night, like the cry from the heart, but we don't really like know what we're doing, right? So um, especially when you're starting out, it's, it, you can be gaslit by that narrative very quickly, which is like, I don't know if you actually knew that you were doing this, or I don't know if you meant that this was, um, uh, you know, the thing that you meant to do. And um, all I can say is that from, you know, what we have uh, talked to together through our stuff is that you just have to keep doing it. It is scary the first time, it's scary the 10th time, it's scary the 100th time that you do it. Um, the more that you do it though, the more you develop the language that you feel comfortable using pushing back. Um, I think that's another part of this conversation. This isn't um, in their questions, but I would just throw out there as well. Um, we're in a moment right now where people are like hyper aware of this and there's a lot of conversations happening around this. And so the way that you talk back um, is also being policed oftentimes by our own marginalized communities, right? So like oftentimes within our own marginalized communities, people are like, you should just tell them to fuck themselves and like tell them, you know, whatever. And like, there's this whole performance of like, and that nobody could hold me down, whatever. And, um, you know, we are writers for a reason. Some of us are a little bit more introverted and don't feel comfortable doing that. More power to you if you do. Thank you for doing that fight if you do. But um, the important thing is, is not to get caught up in like, I should have had the perfect, beautiful, 
comeback statement to when a gatekeeper said X to me because you will never win that battle. Um, the more important thing is like you figured out how to respond to that person in the way that felt true and uh, appropriate for you. Um, and that takes practice that you're, you're not going to get it right the first time again. You're not going to get it right the tenth time. That takes practice and to live with um, the like, I should have said X in the moment. Um, I know for a lot of people, there's like intense shame around that. Like, I, like I'm a writer, I should know the right words to say to this. Um, but our culture runs on keeping all this stuff silent. So of course you don't have the right words for this. Um, and, and just like living with that and, and, and not getting caught up in the shame of like, I didn't say it right that time. So then I can never speak up again. Um, and I'm somehow like betrayed myself or betrayed my people or betrayed my work in some sort of way like that. So, so, so real. Because the other thing I think that happens in that moment is this idea of how you're supposed to perform as a hero for your own people, right? As this, this idea of like, I'm going to do, I'm going to be the Twitter version of myself. I'm going right. to and say the perfect thing and it's going to land and it's going to get 2000 likes or whatever the weird mm -hmm. album had where we expect some sort of feedback. But what actually happens in the moment of pushback is the opposite. It's the thing that we all talk about, but when you're experiencing it, it's extremely isolating because mm -hmm. you feel extremely alone. You don't know that you've done the right thing. All indications of the structure that is behind the other person are saying like, no, you are, you are negligible to this practice. We will go mm -hmm. on without you, but mm -hmm. you yourself don't matter. And this doesn't matter. So I think, um, I think also being really aware that even when you do say something, knowing that that moment doesn't look like it looks in a movie. It doesn't look yeah. like, you don't, you don't have a soundtrack behind you. You don't have all your friends yeah. in you. Like you, it's just you saying a hard thing and dealing with the awkwardness of that moment. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so key. Like, um, you know, it's really, I think when people think when you discuss these things around race and inequality, that the conversations, like you said, are going to look like in a movie, that there's gonna be obvious applause lines, that the person you're talking to is immediately gonna be like chagrined and like, you know, be like, oh, I'm so sorry or whatever. Like no, if you've ever had these hard conversations, you know, they never go that way. Um, and it's a lot of awkwardness, it's a lot of pain, it's a lot of sadness, but um, you know, if you can start to figure out what your own personal strategies are for that happening, instead of taking for that happening, meaning that you did it wrong, or you somehow you're the worst person ever, or like you're the, the problem is with you. It's like, no, the problem is the structure that we're all talking and trying to figure out things in. Um, yep. Yeah. You know, I think also, Kaylin, that brings up um, something, because I do want to get to the part where we talk about strategies so that we're, we're giving people something to kind of work with a little bit, but I think it's important to understand what keeps gatekeeping in place. Like how yeah. does that work, right? How does this like this sort of elusive monster, what is it made of? Because I think once you know what keeps it in place, it's sort of easier to figure out strategies around it. Um, yeah. So I would say like one, you know, one of the things that I think is the most damaging is the amount of silence that is around the writing life. The yeah. amount we um, don't compare notes, we aren't taught to compare notes. We aren't taught that um, we can somehow form some sort of unity. We're all taught to compete against each other. Mm -hmm. And that space, in a moment where you're competing against each other for every little scrap, the person who ends up with all the power is the person who can most easily 
sort of take your words and use them in any way they want to and tell you that you are extraneous to that process, right? Yep. So I think part of it for me is understanding that silence is kind of the biggest, the biggest hurdle for us in a way. Um, yeah. One of the huge things, like how we communicate with each other. Yeah, you know, so much is, um, you know, uh, earlier this month or last month or whenever in this crazy time that we are in, uh, you know, we had the publishing paid me hashtag, which I think probably messed up a whole bunch of people for a whole bunch of different reasons. And that hashtag people listed their advances, um, you know, people who, who, we, who a lot of people very much admire, you found out that they did not get much for their books. Other people said they got a whole bunch for debut books. Um, and you know, it's like, it was a reckoning, right? Like I, I, I do not remember a time when someone, when it has been made so plain, like this is what I got paid X for this. Um, and for a moment like that to happen, it requires people being honest, right? And it requires people to speak up and it requires not just the marginalized people to speak up. It requires the people with a modicum of privilege to speak up. Um, and it also, uh, and, and, uh, that is, I think, a model for how we can start to diffuse some of this gatekeeping stuff going forward. Um, you know, as someone who is privileged to have published a book and to get to pu publish a second book, I try to be as transparent as possible about my process of how I found an agent, how my particular book publishing went, um, what I know about um, approaching editors. I just try to make that as plain as possible to whoever is asking. I remember when I first started writing, there was sort of like this feel of like, you'll only get the good information once you like prove that you're cool enough. Like if you were to approach a writer as just like, hi, I'm like a writer starting out. Like you have to like perform some sort of version that like somehow you're, you're cool enough to like get this information. And when I first started out, I start, I, I, that's how I thought it was supposed to be. So I remember sometimes like, modeling that was the model and following that model and feeling really gross about it and being like why do I feel gross about this why do you feel gross about like xing someone out of this conversation um and really early on being like I don't actually want to do that and like what does it what does it matter if this person who um I don't understand their work if I tell them how to get an agent how is that bad for me or bad for them that that that, that takes nothing like that's nothing off my back nothing it does it's a lot for them and it um is opening up doors in, in another way so um you know that idea that like you're only gonna um impart this information to people whose work you like or to people who you think you like um, is I think a really damaging um, uh, thing that many people across identities have internalized about the publishing process. Oh my God, that's so real. Um, the other the other thing that's really interesting about that is um, is I think that that also like that we are kind of trained to do that. I was certainly trained to do that from the start. I mean, that was also my workshop model, right? The yep. workshop model was silence for the person who's being workshopped and everybody else tells them whether or not their work is worth anything. Like every single way in which we were taught um, to do this job was you're isolated and you're dealing with a tremendous amount of shame. And if you're lucky, if you're really lucky and someone really likes you, then you're led into a room and you just do not let anyone else in, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You may not get what you have, which I think, I think when you take all of those things apart and understand that that's exactly what keeps gatekeeping in place, that's exactly how the monster gets fed, that's when you work to kind of reverse it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just also want to say, like, I think it is so helpful for writers to study solidarity models to figure out how people 
build solidarity in um, political movements, in communities, what those different um, tactics look like, because those are tactics, those are tools. Um, and uh, I think one thing to remember as writers is like solidarity is a two-way street. So um, solidarity does exist within the writing model, but oftentimes we're giving it to our idols, right? Like we're like, nobody can tear down this person and we're just gonna like be around this person, rally around them no matter what bad thing they do, no matter what terrible thing they do. Um, if they're published and they got some awards behind their names, we will prop you up forever. That's not solidarity, right? Like solidarity is a peer-to-peer -peer thing um, and it is really hard work when you are doing it right. Like you are, you, you should be um, offering help, support, uh, uh, you know, aid to people and you should be um, getting the same back. Um, so I think really thinking about that, I'm really thinking about like the concrete steps of like, how do you build community solidarity? Cause they are concrete steps can help as well to counteract um, all of these traditions um, of the literary world that we are sort of stuck in that come from a generation that none of us are a part of anymore that don't serve us well. That, and also like, just like to get really real, like past like the like, it's good for your spirit thing. Like it's good for the bank account. We are entering into a publishing market that nobody knows what is next. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we don't know what book publishing is going like to look like two years from now. We don't know how selling books is going to look like two years from now. The only way through this is to get through this together. The idea that like only one of us will win, that's going to sink everybody. Um, so we, this is actually a moment where we need to start building these other ways of um, talking about books, making a literary community, um, propping books up because um, we are uh, just at the start of like a, a huge revolution of this stuff. And in times of change, um, you can get in front of it by saying the things that you actually want to see change and want to get better instead of just being sort of scared and holding on to this old model that is serving really nobody. Nobody is being served by this. <clears throat> nobody? <laughs> um you know what switch gears just a tiny bit because i feel like there's also the um the what is it like the the silent fear that that we don't talk about um when we talk about gatekeeping that that somehow um we're not going to listen to what is valid criticism right mm -hmm. um so i just want to ask you about that i mean i know i have my strategies but how do you navigate understanding what is valid criticism versus people who are shutting you down because it exposes something in them? Um, you know, it depends on, on where the criticism is coming from. So when it is coming from sort of like a one-on-one -on -one, um, situation, like from an agent or an editor, um, you want to know if that person can have a conversation with you about um, a piece of criticism and if that conversation can be wide ranging. Um, for me, a big strategy to come in is if it's, if it is a question around something and I'm like, I don't think you're reading this right. I try to come in with my models of like, what, what, um, piece of literature is this like, or what argument that already exists is this like, so that I can help you understand what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Very luckily, I have had agents and editors who are always open to sort of talking in that way and taking a second look and thinking about them and that stuff in that way. Um, so if you have somebody who is truly coming from a place of like, I want to make this work better, they yeah. should be able to have that conversation with you and should be able to meet you on those terms and to um, treat this as sort of like, how are we building this in some sort of way? Um, I think a real issue can be that if you 
this is another reason to get used to um, speaking up for yourself because if you are so primed to sort of have your haunches up and be like, okay, everybody's sort of against me and nobody is going to understand me, then um, you won't be able to do that work of like having a real conversation about your work. Like I remember, I'm thinking of a really specific incident with my first book. Um, my editor kind of late in the process, she suggested getting, I think she suggested getting rid of a character. And I knew in my heart that like this character had to be in the book. And my first instinct was to be like, the whole world hates me and everybody is against me and nobody understands me and I'm a beautiful alien and like nobody can understand what I'm trying to do. And I had to like take a moment and be like, wait, no, you know, talk to some writer friends and be like, no, that's not what's going on. This is the natural conflict of what happens when you're creating a piece of art and you have someone else giving you feedback. So I think doing the internal work for yourself to um, figure out when, when it is actually like a real conflict like that and when it is actually just general, the normal give and take that happens when you're talking about a piece of work um, is super critically important. Um, and again, that's why you wanna do that work of speaking up for yourself as much as you can. Because when you don't, you can be in those moments and instead of actually being in that moment, you're just reliving some old trauma and throwing it on that moment and being like, this is exactly like when someone tried to stop me or whatever and you're not able to hear the actual criticism. I just want to say the amount of times that you've pointed out that thing to me is uh, <laughs> encyclopedia of that information. Um, the other thing that I think I always think about with this, with navigating, um, trying to understand if it's valid criticism versus uh, somebody that's try trying to take you out, is that oftentimes um, both can come from the same person, which is really nerve wracking. Like yeah. both things yeah. can have a real blind spot in one area, a real way of not seeing your humanity in one area and have really mm -hmm edits in another and mm -hmm. I, part of my brain that just wanted it to be simple at first just wanted to be like oh this person gets it so they get it all or mm -hmm. they get it so they get none of it but the more painful truth for me has been that navigating it has has really been just that from situation to situation and even in the same person facing that sometimes there's going to be parts that they don't get and not walking away from the entirety of the conversation myself right? Like seeing how, if there's some way for us to get over it, seeing if there's some way that we can kind of reach each other um, and have a conversation that, as you said, settles out in a different place, even if where it started from was incredibly painful for me. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that I've really only been able to do with years and with also um, with understanding that, that, that those conversations move the needle for lack of a better term, like they really can change things sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think that brings us to sort of an, another thing that we had talked about, which is like, you don't actually know who is going to be able to see you in certain moments when you're writing. Um, and it would be lovely to say that um, the people who look like you are always the ones who are able to see you or the people who've had your experience are always the ones who are able to see you. Um, and that's not just, that's just not always the case. Um, and I think when we talk about, this kind of brings us up where, which question, let me bring up our other question, which is, um, gatekeeping from within, within okay. our own communities. So, um, the communities that we belong to, the various, um, communities that we belong to oftentimes, uh, gatekeep it itself. And I know you probably hear this from students a lot. I hear this from students all the time, which is like, I want to write this story, but I'm scared to, 
because right. my community will be mad at me because my community will think I'm betraying them because I'm saying something that will make my community embarrassed um, because I'm talking about some truth that um, my community doesn't want to face. Um, and because if I say this out loud, my community is going to say that I'm against them. Right. And that is a form of gatekeeping as well that we don't talk about as much. Um, but that keeps a lot, so many people from writing um, really great stuff. So many times I've had conversations with a student and they'll tell me an amazing idea for something and they'll say, I could never write this. Um, and, and uh, you know, that is a really hard truth to sit with as, as, a, as, a, marginalized, as a writer for a marginalized community, um, that that internal censorship is also coming. Um, and I, I mean, for me, I'm always sort of thinking like, where, when are my community's um, uh, critiques valid? And when are they maybe not valid? And even on top of that, when are they valid, but like not for me? So, um, you know, I just did an interview with uh, Morgan Jerkins, the a journalist, and she has a, a new nonfiction book out called Wanderers in Strange Lands. It's about um, her following different paths of the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. And so she was talking about writing about uh, these Black communities that she went to in uh, Louisiana and in the, uh, I'll just say just Louisiana was the one she was focusing on, uh, Creole Black communities, which are um, uh, Black communities made up of uh, people who are, were mixed race. They were just, just designated Creole even before Louisiana became a part of the United States. They um, are a distinct ethnic enclave. They read as Black now because of the one drop rule. It's a very complicated history. She's writing about people who describe themselves in terms that are not, uh, you know, um, kosher in 2020 for most Black people, to, be, to put it bluntly. And she's, she's talked about this, like, how do I write about this? How do I write about these people who are telling me these things? Yeah. I want to be true to their um, experience. I also know how uh, literature and editing and not, sorry, literature and criticism work these days when things are taken completely out of context um, for the poll quote or for the Twitter argument of the day. Um, what can I do? And the only thing you can do in that moment is really just write the things that are true to you. Um, and uh, write the things that, um, even if they are painful, are true to you. Um, otherwise, like, what are we doing here? What are we, what is the point of literature here? If we're not gonna do that, you know, <clears throat> then it's something else entirely. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, it's an, it's an ongoing question, I think, for so many of us. And as much as possible, I think, coming to the realization that your community can be um, angry with you for speaking the truth, um, and finding those people of support in your communities who will um, hold you through that and who can um, help you through that um, as stuff goes on. That was a really long answer, but yeah. No, but that was, you know what, because you, you landed on the thing that I think about, because with my last book, I feel like I asked you, like, I feel like we talked about this, like, maybe once, like, every other week, I would come to you and I was like, what am I doing? This is going to go, mm -hmm. this is going to go, this is like, I'm going to lose my own community, I'm mm -hmm. going to is my marriage, I'm gonna lose all sorts of like, I'm just, it's gonna all go into the shitter. And I remember you <laughs> saying um, over and over again, like you have to write for us, right? You mm -hmm. have to write for us. And at the time you, what you were saying is, you know, that us isn't, it isn't a certain ethnicity, it can't be on any census, but it's this, there is for all of this, all of your pain and trauma around something and all of the communities that want you to shut up about it, they're also the people for whom it will actually speak right? Mm -hmm. For whom it will resonate. And when you build that place, 
um, that is a place that, you know, it's an actual place. You build it and people will come to it. And that yeah. was the side of it that I really couldn't see at the time. I mean, really, Caitlin, basically what I was like, I was like, if this doesn't work out well, I'm going to hate Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> but truth is true. Like that, that idea that there is an us and the us is unseen and you don't know it until you build the place for us to come. You don't know that there are other people that have had these same questions, that they've lived with these same truths um, and that they have been they have been informed by them probably in the way that you have. And it feels so good to see it resonated. And I think that's something that I think about a lot, um, a lot, a lot when I'm scared of what I'm writing. Yeah, and, and we are lucky in that we are in the information age, we are in the age of social media. So when we build those places, the immediacy of people coming to tell you that they are there are is much more than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and that's actually something really cool about publishing right now, I think, um, is the, the, the way that people can reach out to you and say, um, you know, this, this thing is that you built a kind of like another home for me. So it's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, we're going to go to the questions in a minute, but I did want to talk about the strategies that, that you and I have come up with uh, individually and sometimes together for um, dealing, with, uh, dealing with gatekeeping and navigating it um, and how to kind of circumvent it and, and kind of ways forward. Um, what are yours, girl? Um, I mean, yeah, I think that the transparency is key. And so um, being as transparent as possible about the process and and business side of writing because when we're talking about gatekeeping we're really talking about the business side of writing mm -hmm. and so um being as transparent as possible and and trying to connect with other people who are on the same level as tra of transparency as i am so um mm -hmm. and, and that means um anyone that means op being open to um communing with people who maybe you didn't even expect that you were going to just because they're bringing that openness to the table as well you would like to think that all of your literary faves are going to be as open and lovely and everything as, as you would like, but people are in different phases of doing whatever. You know, this isn't even like a judgment thing. Sometimes people just don't have the energy, they have other things going on in their life. So instead of trying to always kind of like connect with the person who you think you're supposed to be connecting with, um, if that connection is not coming back to you, um, making that connection with the people who are willing to be the level of transparent that you particularly need at that moment in your life or in your career or whatever, I think is really key. Um, and, uh, and that can even just be one person, you know, you don't have to have a, a crew 20 deep to make this happen. That can just be one other person who you um, feel like you can have these conversations with. Um, and uh, I think as well, um, remembering as much as possible uh, how many different avenues there are to um, moving forward with uh, your work, especially yeah. nowadays. Um, you know, uh, it's a little bit funny because I feel like both of us, we, our writing lives have, have um, stretched over the period of uh, like pre-social media to like now. Yeah. And the, the difference is so astonishing. And um, the fact that there are so many um, venues to write for, the fact that there are so many different communities to um, engage in relatively easily, even right. if you are 
isolated physically in a physical location far away from other writers or far away from writers who share your identity. Finding them online is so much easier. Um, all those things are things not to fear, but things to um, lean into as, as, as much as you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would just add to that, I feel like our, our strategies shockingly are very similar. Um, <laughs> But the other thing that I would add to that is um, something that I've seen uh, you do countless times and I know matters to me a lot as well, which is when you get through a door or a gate, for keeping the metaphor, when you get through, try to pull other people in behind you, right? Mm -hmm. Try to like wedge your body in. Always when you've, got an, when you've got the ear of an editor and you know that you're one of the first in, always point them to other people from communities that you don't think are getting the same level of attention and say, do you know about this person? Do you know about this person, mm -hmm. right? a short list of people that I'm always kind of thinking like, how do we, how do we move it forward for all of us? Right. And yep. do this. And so much of that work, we always think like, I don't have enough. It's not, you know, there's again, the scarcity model, but that generosity, it's not even generosity. It's just, as you said, it's just like, this is the way forward. This is the way we're going to live. This is the way we're going to sustain ourselves. Um, and thinking into that place where there's, there's a, a way to hold each other instead of barring each other out, I think is so important for me. Yeah, I would just add really quickly too, one of the reasons to um, you know, bring other writers with you, the more writers who um, share your identity who are out there, the easier it becomes for people who don't share your identity to read you because they have the context. And the easier it becomes for you to do your work because you don't have the pressure of being the one and only. So it's, it is actually a survival model for yourself to bring as many people with you as you can, because you are building your own sort of like mini canon. You're saying, you don't, you don't get my work? Well, then read Mira's work, please. And then figure out how they're in conversation with each other. And then you can read this other person's work and that person's is in conversations with this. And this is the constellation that I am writing into and a part of. And these other, as you're, you're making sure that those other realities are seen so people can see your reality as well and understand it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I promised everyone that we would save 20 minutes for questions. Um, let's see, okay. Um, this question is for me. You guys, um, please jump into the Q&A and uh, ask anything you want. Um, this question is for Mira. Can you speak to the gatekeeping within publishing that shuts out graphic storytellers? Do you think your novel opened the door for your graphic memoir? And do you think your graphic memoir opened the door for publishing shorter graphic pieces. Interesting. Okay. Um, what I would say about this is, I think we talked about this a little bit in our workshop as well. Um, doing, doing graphic work, um, having editors that can really engage with it can really speak to you on the level about both the visual and the written component. Finding someone who's equally versed in both is really hard which means that at some stage of the process, you are completely alone with one or the other. Um, for that reason, I think it's really important to have a community, a community of graphic storytellers. Um, you have to have other people that are working just as hard as you are and know all the balls that you are juggling to make every frame count, and that is essential. Um, do I think my novel opened the door for the graphic memoir? No, I'm gonna tell you, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe just it was good that I had published something before, but I will just tell you, honestly, to do that graphic memoir, nobody was looking for a person with limited drawing skills to draw mm -hmm. about race in the moment that I was 
trying that I was selling that proposal, I wrote a 100 page proposal to, to like sell that book. I wrote almost the entire book to get people to understand what I was doing. And I put a portion of it um, up and I put it up on Buzzfeed because what you get if you put it up on a site like that is you get the back end and you can see how long people have viewed it and where it goes and, um, and what the page views are. Um, and when it goes viral, I had a fair idea. It was a piece about Michael Jackson that it was gonna go viral. When it goes viral, you can see how much engagement happened. And what I did to sell that book was I took that chart and I made it into a marketing chart and I put it in my 100 page proposal and I said, there is an us. Please let me write this book, there is an us. You don't think people are worried about this stuff. That is, there is absolutely people that are having these conversations. I need you to help me have the conversation that needs to be had. So, um, which is to say, I think you gotta get really smart about when you are building, when you are presenting a voice um, that people can't sell. And that's what they'll tell you all the time. I just don't know how to sell you. You have to envision it. And also just a side note to that, you can envision it. Like that is, you are completely capable of that. You are completely capable of finding a place for yourself in the world. And when you do that and you can explain that to other people, when you can say, this is what it is and this place exists and I know it because I live there, that's when you can kind of turn the conversation around and take the control back in it. So, um, okay. Uh, identified so strongly, hold on, I'm gonna read another question. Um, identified so strongly with what you all had to say about the relentless isolating individual, individualism of the writing world. And in general, because of that, I have sought out collaborative artistic spaces or spaces where I'm the only one of a few writers present. But it would be nice to kick it with the writing homies too. Do you all know of any organizations, residencies, publications, collectives, et cetera, that foreground writers but de-emphasize competitive individualism? Caitlin, what you got? Um, you know, I think there's a bunch of different uh, ones built around identity. There's Vona, there's Lambda, there's um, Asian American Writers Workshop, all those places. Um, you know, I can't speak to the individual people who are in there. You maybe meet some people who are more individually minded, but the writers who are going to um, show up in those spaces are already sort of pre-selected to want to be thinking about community in a larger way. So I think um, whatever you whatever communities you belong to, I guarantee you that there is a, a writing space connected to it. Um, and if there isn't, and if you are willing to put in that labor, you can start to make your own, which is really can be something as simple as saying, I want to do a virtual writers group, um, come join me in, in a Google Hangout for um, 40 minutes once a week or whatever. Um, I think, uh, um, Figuring out how you're going to connect with people is really key to this question of de-emphasizing um, the individualism. So for me, uh, a really helpful tactic has been to connect with people first and foremost over the um, work of other people. And actually a really good tell and a really good test is to connect with living writers' works of people who are um, early in their career. 
And if another writer can praise a living writer who is early in their career, who are at similar career level as you, that's usually a pretty good tell that that person is open to community. If they only have um, hatred for, <laughs> for other writers who are in a similar space, they're not ready. Um, and they're not maybe able to have those conversations in the way that you want to talk, talk do, have them. So that's actually a really good tell. Think of a writer who you know who is um, early in their publication career, whose work you really like a lot, whose work you just want to like have a talk about how great it is. Can you have a conversation with this other person you're trying to connect to where you're both able to say this is good? Um, or uh, is that person going to just be interested in, in tearing that other person down? Totally. Um, That's such a, the, you're right. That is such a good tell. Um, and just on, just to advocate for, if you can't find it, you build it yourself, um, which is a lot of the work that I've had to do over my career. And I think Caitlin as well. Um, so with my, my last book, um, which was a graphic memoir about race, um, when I originally, I was invited into a writer's group. I didn't know people very well in that group. And, um, and I submitted it to them right before the November 2016 election. Um, and we met right after. Caitlin's nodding because she's like, oh, I remember all the therapy I had to do for this. <laughs> so we met right after. And um, the group was um, four white writers and another writer of color and me, so six people total. And um, basically what happened in short order was um, a couple people deciding and saying pretty clearly, um, this book is what's wrong with America. You're the reason that we lost the election. Um, this book is going to do tremendous damage. You are simply fighting about things that, um, that don't deserve that attention. I never feel as sorry for myself as you do. The whole thing was really decimating, but the thing that was really the worst was that I understood kind of quickly. I was like, these people don't want me to write this book. They don't want me to write this book. And, um, and that was, and then I was like, they don't want me to write because this is the stuff I write about. Um, and I didn't know what to do with that until I was talking to um, Alex Chi, who, you know, I was saying, you know, I just, I, and he said, why are you in this writer's group? And I was like, I don't know, because it was a writer's group and I needed a writer's group. And he said, what if you made, what would it look like if you made a dream writer's group? And it had never occurred to me until that point that I could make a dream writer's group, right? Um, but what I did was I went and I looked at the works of people that some people I knew and some people I didn't, um, but people that I thought were having the same kinds of conversations that would push me really hard. Frankly, it was people who I was scared of, um, people whose work I thought was fantastic. And I asked them to join me and we made a writer's group. Um, so just to say like, that is something you can do and you can build that community. And that's, it's completely possible and it's highly sustaining. Um, um, okay, I have another question. This is amazing. Thank you both. Do you have any tips for climbing out, for working to climb out of the scarcity mindset? I've noticed a lot of defensiveness in myself and feeling like the one and only and want to be able to see similar work in people and learn, but it's been hard. Are there path tips to healing that? Oh, this is such a sweet, and yes, I feel you person who wrote this question. Um, and I'm glad you're asking this question because I think part, honestly, part of climbing out of it is being able to recognize that, is being able to understand like, oh, I'm having a resistance here. And there's some part of me that's really terrorized in this place. Um, Caitlin, do you want to speak to this or? Yeah, I mean, I think a good model is um, to, uh, 
for me, it's actually been looking at how many biographies of writers, particularly when you're talking about writers from a marginalized identity, um, when you read their biographies, many of them, you realize they were not writing alone. They were writing in communion. So like, um, for me, it has been looking at, you know, Toni Morrison is, of course, everybody's North Star. But for me, it has been looking at her career. And the the top notes of her career is like, there's only there was only one Toni Morrison. She's the best. She's like a, she's she's a genius who came out of nowhere. We don't know where she came from, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at how she described her career herself and how the women around her described it, she was in a writing group with, uh, who was like, like, you see all these pictures of her online when she's in a writing group with like Tony Kede Bambara, Alice Walker, um, Audre Lorde and whoever, and they're just all hanging around. You're like, those are five genius heady hitters who we are told are the one only other kind. And in fact, they were not. And in fact, they were all talking to each other constantly. Um, so I think we need to start, like Mira was saying, building in ourselves. Part of that is like building an alternative story of what it means to be a writer. Um, and when you look at these, many of these people from these identities who we have, you start to realize, oh wait, that writer who I thought was like such a weirdo and so individualistic or whatever, they were in conversation with all these other people who are doing um, similar work or doing work maybe that isn't necessarily immediately similar to theirs, but they were other writers in conversation. And you start to realize that most of the writers who we think of as really great writers and really doing innovative, amazing, wonderful work, the work that sustains us, were in these conversations with other artists. And that can start to be your model. Um, there's a really great um, interview with Raquel Willis, um, who's, the uh, I think now she's at Out Magazine. Mm -hmm. She did an interview with Saeed Jones like a few months ago, and she talked about this idea of possibility models. So I'm um, looking for those people who show you what's possible. And those people are my possibility models. We've been talking about it a lot with my um, nieces around uh, like black and trans history essentially. But like possibility models, those people who can show you an alternate way of being um, are really key to start to um, uh, work against those internalized ideas about scarcity. Um, and the more that you read about them, it takes a long time, but the more that you read about them and immerse yourself in that, the voice that's in you that's saying, you have to be the one and only, there's only one and only, they'll never take another X type of writer, they'll never take another Y type of writer, um, the window is closing, act now, act now, act now, that voice gets quieter the more that you read all of these other possible ways of um, moving through uh, um, literary spaces and literary histories. So, um, and, and you can look for those people anywhere. They don't have to show, share your one-on-one -on -one identity. You know, like I, a, a huge possibility model for me is Grace Paley um, and reading about how she was a working writer and mother, um, you know, writing short stories on the playground with other writers their mothers watching her kids play like that is a possibility model you know so like um being open to um all of those alternative ways of um of of moving through the space yeah and also knowing i mean i think so much of what you're pointing out of course because you're caitlin and you're obsessed with history but um so much of what you're pointing out is also that these things have existed before they exist these systems do exist in other areas we haven't brought them into the literary world as much as we should and that's for a reason that's because it benefits um the industry for us not to communicate in this way with each other and not to take care of each other but those models exist right that that um universe is something that we can step into should we want to do that work so just to say um presenting like i, I understand where the scarcity comes from because also by the way you guys it would be impossible if you didn't have that we have all been told all our lives that we are the only one 
That is, mm -hmm. that is literally what the white patriarchy and capitalism has raised us to believe. You are the only one. It really is hard to unpack that. So like, don't knock yourself for having that in you. Of course you do. That doesn't mean you're poisoned. That means that you were raised to believe that your value can only ever be this, but your value can be this, right? And your value mm -hmm. can have someone else come right in contact with it. It doesn't need to be lonely. So I think part of it is also actively imagining what it would feel like to be able to look at someone else's work and not feel threatened by it because you don't register them as a threat anymore. Because mm -hmm. you through that part of it. And there's so much relief also when you, I will just say when you can do that and as many times as, and this is not like a thing you do once, by the way, it's a thing you do your whole career, right? Learning how not to compete with people, learning how to like take your jealous feelings and do something else with them. This mm -hmm. is sustaining. Like when you learn to do that work, it is so sustaining. It is how you will keep making work. Um, so it's integral, you know, to your life and it's, and it's sort of imperative that you figured out. It's just, it's a lot nicer too for your soul. Yeah. Um, okay. We got one more question in here. Um, I find the hardest thing to parse out within gatekeeping is how often I hear something I'm pushing forward just isn't possible and there's no room for negotiating and having no access to knowing if my expectation is the problem or if I'm being kept out. Woo. Yeah. This question. Do you have any advice? for ways to kind of ground yourself in this advocacy if you don't have access, that access to community within actual, sorry, with actual insight? Yeah, this is a tough question. So you, um, you know, you're, this is a really tough question. Um, I think, okay, this is gonna be maybe not the best advice. Mira, tell me if this is terrible advice. <laughs> But I think letting go of the idea that like, if you, if you're asking for too much, that that's like the worst thing in the world, because it really isn't. Um, and I think when we, you know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about sort of like this silence in the literary community that keeps gatekeeping going. Like, one of the things around literary community stuff is like the passive aggression and like, oh, they made a faux pas and like, you can't talk to that writer anymore. Like that whole bullshit is um a real thing and really difficult but is real for maybe like i think like five percent of the people who operate in here it just feels very oppressive because nobody talks about it and nobody talks against it but the idea that if you ask for something for too much um you will forever be blackballed i think is maybe not as real an idea as we hold on to um and and again when we say about making things transparent and plain um, once we make things transparent and plain, that myth starts to die a little bit, right? Um, so I I say this fully knowing, and Mira fully knows, it is very hard for me to ask for what I need and what I want. Um, and I'm terribly terrified of asking for too much of people. Um, but I'm, you know, in my own journey of life, I am realizing that asking too much of people is not the worst thing in the world, actually. Um, taking up space is not the worst thing in the world, actually. Um, it is really not a terrible thing to have overstepped and asked too much. It's not rude. It's not awful. It's not unprofessional. It's simply you ask too much. And if the other person can have the professionalism to say, no, that's not what you need right now, um, that will come back to you. And even, um, you know, as I when I have these conversations with my agent about things, like I'm asking, like, I, I want this or what, want that. And she will sometimes come back and say, no, that's not, that's not possible right now. It has taken uh, many years to go within myself to realize like, that's not a personal judgment. She's just saying, 
this is not possible right now. That's all that is. It's not, that is, it is neither a negative or a positive judgment. It's literally just, that's not possible right now. But um, that's because I have a relationship with her where I really trust her word and stuff. So again, that figuring out um, when that is just a, a, like a fact um, and when somebody is wielding that against you as a judgment is really key. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm babbling at this point. So that is solid, girl. That is solid, solid advice. That was, <laughs> that was totally great. I'm in 100% agreement with you. And um, just to also say, like, I used to be the boss of many people in my former sad, strange corporate life. But one of the things I learned as the boss was that um, whenever somebody was offered a salary, right, almost always, like, the white college educated kids would ask for like 30% more, just right off the bat, just boom. And almost always the women would not ask for anything. And almost always the women of color would say, thank you so quickly because they got the job and just get off the phone. And one of the first things that I always did with people that were working for me was, you know, say to them, like, you gotta, you gotta ask for more. You just have to ask. It really isn't the worst thing. The worst thing you can hear is no. And as Caitlin said, you can decide not to take the no personally. You can be like, that's, that's some information. That's information. That's all I needed. But of course you deserve to ask. Of course you deserve to ask. Like that's just, that's basic and it's, um, and it's necessary. Yeah. Um, okay. We got one last question. Can you all speak to how gatekeeping shows up in hiring practices of those various literary orgs and institutions? Well, okay. We got two minutes left, but I think one of the things that is really interesting is that Caitlin and I are having this talk after a major shakedown in the industry, after some really big changes have been happening, but it has taken a very, very long time. So in the last um, weeks, I'm sure you guys know, um, Lisa Lucas, Dana Kennedy, who else, um, who else, Caitlin, who am I forgetting? I feel like there were a bunch of different, Rakesh, Sethal, like uh, people were just, they have been elevated to the oh, age. The new editor at Harper's Bazaar, um, the new black woman editor at Harper's Bazaar, yeah. Right, so there's been kind of an industry-wide um, shakeup right now. I am curious, to answer your question, Serena, I don't know if that's going to kind of reverse engineer some hiring practices um, with literary orgs and institutions. I don't know if there's going to be an effect where it's like, okay, it's just got to change now. Um, and we're going to do it this way. Because one of the most interesting things about this change is that they are looking for people that are not in the literary industry because the literary industry chased them out. So they're taking people from other industries and saying like, you're okay, sure, you weren't a books editor. You didn't come up editing books. That's not what you did. Or if you did, you were shut out in this or that way. We're giving you the position and authority to do the work that you need to do. I'm curious about how that's going to affect the rest of the industry. So I'm gonna tell you that that question is a little bit of a to be continued because we are in a time of wild possibility and um, the continuation is the thing that we all kind of kind of keep our eyes on. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I would just add, you know, it's always comes down to money of who is able to enter these um, industries um, and that will continue to be and, it, and it'll be squeezed even more as we enter into this strange new economic post COVID world. Um, but it's going to, I want to just stress, if you can take away anything from this talk is that we as writers have agency to create the world and the systems that we want to see. 
um, now more than ever. We, I mean, we've always had that in, in being able to find um, our communities, but now more than ever, with all the tools open to us, with all of the high, highly specific and highly rich conversations that are happening around access and identity and all these questions, we have all the tools in our hands right now to make the literary world that we want and so we should not be sitting here waiting to say, but um, what about that gatekeeper who's going to say whether we did good or not? Doesn't matter anymore. We can make what we want right now. Yes, amazing. Okay, Caitlin, as usual, <laughs> great talking to you. <laughs> yes, good talking to you too. <laughs> <laughs> Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021. You can do so and find out all the benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers or if you prefer a one-time donation you can do so via paypal at tinhouse.com slash support i'd like to thank the tin house team elizabeth DeMeo and elisa ogie in the book division jacob bala in the art department yashwina Cantor in publicity and lance cleland the director of the summer and winter tin house writers workshops and finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.